So as you know, we're in the book of Proverbs, so if you want to just uh, turn there, chapter 1, we're going to be all over the place today, so just get yourself at least to the book, and then we'll, uh, we'll move through it together. Okay, I'm just going to pray and open up, because uh, my brain's all over the place with uh, all the tech stuff, and uh, i got to move into the word from the administration, so let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for this gathering. Uh, thank you that uh, Jeff and Adeline have been blessed with this property. And um, ironically, we're going to be studying the subject matter today as to why they've been blessed. <laughs> and we give you thanks, oh God, for it. And thank you they've been willing to open up their home to us. And, and uh, it gives us a picture of what like Lazarus and, and Martha and Mary had as a home when they opened it up to your disciples. And that became a mainstay for ministry. And I just think, Lord, that this would be the equivalent of of what they did for your for you and your men. Lord, we just uh, now ask you to be with us in spirit and your presence be with us. I just ask you to calm my heart and help me focus on your word and move away from the distractions of the necessary necessity things, but now to transition into your word, Lord, is really important. And so we just want, Lord, for you to strengthen me and give me the words to say. Words that may not be in my notes, um, maybe take things out of the notes that aren't supposed to be there. Lord, just, uh, but again, just that you open the eyes of uh, those here, open the hearts of those here, and the ears of those here to hear truly from what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you can tell uh, by the sermon slide that's opening up the service today, uh, we're going to be looking at the first topic within the book of Proverbs we're going to be covering. And that's finances or money. Now, before we dive into this topic, I want to remind you of what we covered last week so that you remember how Proverbs encourage us as to look at the book. How do we approach the subject that Proverbs teaches in the first place? And so there's a few lessons I want to revisit from last week. The first one is to define a proverb. Uh, I think the best way to look at a proverb is something like this. It's a short sentence of wisdom with moral implications. A short sentence of wisdom with moral implications. And they're de designed to provoke you. When you hear them, they're designed to make you want to either reject them or receive them, uh, depending, again, on what you hear in the stage of life you're in. <coughs> but the purpose of these is to acquire wisdom so that we know how to live our, out our lives in ways that honor God and others. So the purpose is to acquire wisdom, but not just so that you have like a head knowledge and it stays there, it's to impact the way you live. It's how you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and your neighbor and yourself. Proverbs will help you fulfill the greatest commandment that Jesus speaks about. Now the source of this wisdom of course, is God himself. We saw that in chapter 2 and verse 6. God is the source of wisdom. And I love this. He's personified as a lady, as a woman, in terms of the wisdom he has to offer. And so this lady is crying out in chapter 1, verse 20, crying at the head of a street, at the head of a noisy city, and is calling out, saying, listen to me, listen to me. I've got something to offer you. Now, remember, there's another lady who's on the opposite side of Lady Wisdom, begging for your attention as, as well. And that's Lady Folly. Lady Folly. And she is the one that wants to make you not obey God's wisdom, 
and not go after God's care, ways. Now, this is so cool. It's interesting that uh, Genesis House is covering Lady Folly's mouth. I mean, that's actually... About, I mean, sermon is done. I'm out of here. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, here's what's so cool. Aliyah Rempel did these for me. So I scoured the internet looking for good pictures, and I found a whole bunch of stuff, and I was like, ah, I don't like that, I don't like that. I'm like, you know what, Aliyah, would you draw something for our church? And so she did this. And Laurel, in her great skills, took all of her pictures and made me different PowerPoint slides on how to use them throughout the sermon series. So. Thank you to Aaliyah for drawing these and then for um, Laurel for organizing it. So we're going to be using this constantly throughout the entire Proverbs series. These pictures are going to become synonymous in, in our sermon series. But yeah, so Leah wrote down Proverbs 120 along the sash of the woman, who's lately wisdom. And here Proverbs 5.3 speaks of her and Proverbs 9.13 is what I quoted from uh, last week, but they both have validity. So anyway... So Leah did a fantastic job, and uh, you need to put that on the internet and then uh, get that out there. So, okay, so two women vying for your attention. So how do we interpret Proverbs if both are vying for your attention? Number one was this. It's not a book of principles that allow us to always predict or control how life will turn out. So you read that and go, oh yeah, it's a guarantee for me, either on the, the negative side or the positive side. Um, so they're not, it's not a guarantee, however, and they're also not rules. They're not rules to follow, but principles of life. And it's the general rule of life. So, again, there's always going to be exceptions if you choose Lady Folly's way. But the encouragement, of course, is to embrace God's wisdom. So much so, so much so, is to ignore Lady Wisdom and adore God's wisdom is to be called a fool or to act foolish. So again, you might say, oh, I'm going to be the exception. I'm not going to obey what God wants in this. It's just a principle. It's not a rule or a command. Fine, but just so you know, you're the exception. You will be considered foolish according to Proverbs, and life will generally not work out well for you compared to the blessing on the other side. So the encouragement is to still walk in truth of the wisdom that Proverbs has to offer. And my favorite uh, verse from last week was Ecclesiastes 12, 10, 11. Proverbs will pr provoke you into, uh, with a strong response. Now here is the passage. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So Solomon wrote that. So he wrote Proverbs. He wrote this. It's the same guy. And he's like, the words of the wise are like sharp sticks that you use to prod cattle. They're like firmly embedded nails. So again, you'll find yourself being poked and prodded to obey Lady Wisdom, and you'll especially feel it when you disagree with Lady Wisdom and you want to be the exception. That's when you really feel the poke, I guess you could say. Okay? So nothing could be more true about this than, the term, than in terms of the topic of money. Money and finances and wealth. A very sensitive and personal issue to all of us here. Now, before we begin to unpack what Proverbs says, one uh, thing we learned last week that's foundational to how we relate to the use of money is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Remember, this was uh, something used at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. It encapsulates the book. It's the bookends of the, of the Proverbs. 
And there were 14 references or so to the fear of the Lord throughout the entire book. And the fear of the Lord was a healthy reverence, demonstrated by a willingness to submit to an authority greater than our own. It's an attitude towards God that influences all of us in our decisions and actions. And so how you relate to wealth and the use of it is really rooted in how you relate to God. And if you fear him, if you revere him, and if you see yourself submitting to an authority that is greater than yourself. If you don't have a healthy fear of the Lord, and you're wrestling through these next three or four weeks that we're going to discuss, <coughs> none of these principles will really influence you to change. I will state the truth of Proverbs, and you're just going to go in one ear and out the other. Because all they are is principles, but they're not, they're not rightly related to a healthy fear of the Lord. So really, the healthy fear of the Lord and trusting Him with your finances and how you view Him in your life is critical in how you operate with money and how you pursue your wealth. Now here's what I love. In the Old Testament, the Lord is Yahweh, like God, right? The Father. Jesus is given the same title as Lord in the New Testament, as in the Old Testament. You remember when he was born, the angel came to him and said, you know, a Savior has been born for you today. He is the Lord, the Christ, right? So the Lord is Jesus Christ. So it's a healthy fear of Jesus that we need to operate well with our finances. Now, the New the New Testament teaches us that when you and I become Christians, three virtues are present in our lives that identify our Christian walk. <clears throat> There's three virtues that really shape our character and identify who we are. And they are faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. They might be asking, why are you introducing this to me now when it's about money? Well, here's what's amazing, okay? Let's just look at these first and we'll, we'll tie it all together. But in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, Paul said this, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and, and your endurance inspired Oh, I duplicated the same thing twice. Oops. Oh, well. Just trust me. The first Thessalonians 5 8 says something different about faith, hope, and love. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13 13. And I love this one. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why that's a really great verse is because he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he's saying, in this world, spiritual gifts will end. They'll end. But in eternity, in the new world, in the new heavens, and new earth, Faith, hope, and love will remain. So just like faith, hope, and love are, are consistent today, they're there in eternity. Gifts of the Spirit, here today, gone in eternity. So he's really talking about the three virtues that make up your life as a Christian. So what's faith? Faith is where you put your trust. Hope is security in the future. And love is the active pursuit of another's well-being. So 
So faith, where you put your trust, hope, the security of the future, love, active pursuit, and other well-being. So let's just take the area of generosity and giving, for example. And let's put it against faith, hope, and love. I can stand up in here and say, you need to be generous, I need to be giving as a person. What would stop me from being generous and giving? What would stop you? Faith. I'm not going to give God because I am not certain that I can trust you to take care of me if I let this go. I won't give because I don't have the cert. I need it, and I don't have the certainty that I'm protected by you if I let this go. How about hope? Um, your hope with finances is not placed on what God's future is, but what the world is saying is important. So if I believe that my hope is secure in eternity, it's going to change the way I deal with money here. But if I think the world here is the most important thing, all of my wealth is going to be towards making this world as good as it can. So in terms of hope, like, you know, where do we seek comfort? And so on and so forth. Where do we get our sense of value from? Is it in food, clothing, toys, the security in this life, or is it in God and what he has to promise in the next life? How about love? Why would I not give in terms of love? Why would I not pursue another's well-being? Well, frankly, because I lack compassion. I'm not going to take care of someone else's needs because I just <coughs> love them the way maybe God abused them. And so I lack compassion. So again, you see, giving and generosity as only one principle challenges every one of these virtues to the core. And we haven't even looked at all the other principles by which how to handle money. You see, this is why it's so important. This is about knowing Jesus and trusting him with your life before we even deal with the subject matter. Allowing him to transform your heart, your thoughts, your, and your actions. And I'll be honest with you, that's why you have never heard me ask in 11 years of ministry for a dime from the front from you. You've never seen us take put an offering plate to the congregation in 11 years. Why? If we lack the resources in this church to do ministry and to further his kingdom, it's not going to be resolved by me barking orders at you and giving you guilt trips. It's a hard issue between you and the Lord. My job is to make you fall in love with Jesus and the money will take care of itself. Only when you see him as the ultimate treasure will you share yours. That's why we can't speak about Proverbs yet until we have a healthy fear of the Lord. And you and I have our hearts right with him. Only when you see him as the ultimate treasure will you share yours. With all that being said, we can now turn to Proverbs. We're going to go over some money principles and wealth principles for three to four weeks. Um, however, 
I'm not going to do justice to the entire subject in that time. So again, you have access to the, the letter, the book, so you can do some extra study. But hopefully what I do cover is of value. Let's just start by saying this, that in the book of Proverbs, money and wealth is actually uh, spoken of in quite a positive way. It's actually spoken of in a positive way. So if you look at these verses from Proverbs, 10, chapter 10, verse 4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Bringing wealth is a good thing in this context. Uh, Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing from the Lord makes a person rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So the Lord is directly tied to making someone wealthy. Uh, 11.24, one person is generous and yet grows more wealthy, but another withholds more than he should and comes to poverty. Again, generosity here produces wealth. And 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinners is up for the righteous. So again, there's a transfer of money from one to the other. But as you can see, Proverbs is not afraid to say, wealth's okay, that's a good thing. In fact, the Lord's behind bringing wealth in many instances. He connects hard work, he connects discipline, self-control with economic prosperity. And Proverbs has no problem stating that when one fears the Lord and walks in his wisdom, wealth can be a resultant blessing. But here's what's really cool about Proverbs. The wealth that we receive and the blessing we get is not just for personal gain. It's so that we can turn around and bless others with our wealth. So consider these two Proverbs here. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. That's the key point. If you're watering someone else, you're operating in the, the, the virtue of love. Faith, hope, and love. I'm, I'm going to love another person, show compassion. Now, as I'm watering someone else, then I will be watered in return. Uh, Proverbs 22, he who is generous will be blessed for his, for he gives some of his food to the poor. So again, the wealth that one is given is to be given out to bless other people. So again, this is really, this is really important because wealth is spoken of positively, but it's also not just for personal pleasure, but for the blessing to others it can bring. Now, at the same time, Proverbs does say there are inherent dangers to accumulating wealth. So what are they? Number one, wealth has the potential to corrupt your personal integrity. Turn with me to chapter 11, verse 1. Eleven one. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a, a just weight is his delight. You see in this proverb that the person who's doing business has two scales. Uh, sorry, has, this, has uh, scales with two options, I should say. One scale, two options. One, if you come to me as a consumer and I'm the business owner, I can measure the product you want accurately and I can choose to be honest with my financial dealings or I can choose to be dishonest by fudging the numbers. So how would I do that? Let's say you want to buy barley off of me and you ask for five pounds. And so what I do is uh, while you're not, as I'm pouring the barley on the scale, I add a little, um, almost like a tire weight that we see to balance tires. 
little like you know half ounce weight and I put it on the scale with the barley. So uh, I give you four pounds of barley, but you think it's five, but I've used the weight to make it this ounce. Right? Or I can take the weight off, give you five pounds of actual barley. But we see what's happening here? Dishonest balances are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is a delight. Why would someone choose to lie about the product on the scales? The desire for the accumulation of profit. To make more money by selling less goods. It's wealth and the desire for it that corrupts personal integrity, according to this proverb. It's a chance to profit without anybody else knowing. But he says it's an abomination to the Lord. The person you're dealing with doesn't even know it's happening. But God sees it. I've been tempted so many times in my business practices before, before I became full-time in ministry. And I've told this story before, but some of you are new. It's worth hearing, and I'll do a very short Coles version. But when I did massage therapy, uh, uh, people would use health care, like sunlight and things, to, uh, to get redeemed for the product. Often the client's money would run out on their sun life because you get $500 a year is typical. They would come to me and say, my benefits have run out, but my husband or my wife has never used this massage therapy. Can you write receipts under their name? And I would always say, I can't do it. And they would always say, but, but nobody knows. Nobody knows. And they're like, you're right, but the Lord knows. <laughs> Wealth has the potential to corrupt personal integrity. And man, did I ever want to do it? You have to understand that's a real temptation, especially when times were lean. In business, I was like, I could just make $500 right now, right now without anybody knowing. But I choose to forgo the $500 for the sake of walking in integrity with God. Number two, wealth has the power to destroy community. Let's look at 1126. Eleven twenty-six. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Now at first you're like, how does this relate? And that took me a while to work through it myself. Here's the context, okay? There's clearly a probably a food shortage in society. The man who or the woman who has the grain is holding on to it for one reason to drive up the price of the grain, knowing that people full well are in need of it. So he withholds the grain in time of famine or whatever, or scarcity, to drive up the price of grain. And that's why the people are cursing him. Because he's got the product, everyone needs it, but he won't sell it. He won't sell it. And then he eventually sells it at a, at a, at a huge cost. So here's what's important about this. This is where it's about rules and commands again, like laws and, and principles. Laws versus principles, which Proverbs is principles. What he's doing is not illegal. There's no law saying you can't change the price of something as a, as a, as a seller. Right? Like who 
Who says a banana has to be this much and not this much? Who says that? You get, you get to decide how much your product is worth. There's nothing against it. Number two, there's nothing about when you make it available in terms of a law. It doesn't say make your product available in times of scarcity versus times of prosperity. There's no law about it. So there's no rules surrounding what he's done. But yet, his practices are being condemned by Proverbs. There's no rules, but it's a condemned practice. Why? Because Lady Wisdom says, you're not caring about your fellow person by doing this. It's not just about your personal wealth. It's about how your personal wealth impacts the community around you and how it brings blessing to other people who are in need. Isn't that powerful? He's condemning business practices with only one bottom line, and that's personal profit at the expense of the community. That's what he's condemning. Lady Wisdom says this, you be willing to forego a greater profit for the common good of your fellow men. Think about this now, practically speaking, and how people make decisions today about what businesses they buy. Four businesses are for sale, and you sit down with your cronies, and you're going to buy a practice. What is the number one thing you care about in terms of whether you buy that business or not? Profit. That's it. Isn't it? Be honest. That's it. What is Proverbs saying? You and I are foolish to do that. Are you goaded yet? Are you feeling a bit jabbed? You and I are foolish to do that. Why? We didn't ask the proper question. We didn't ask which one stands us to profit so that we can benefit the community. Which business, which business has shown practices that care about others outside of themselves as part of the decision-making and buying their company? If that doesn't speak, that's, 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 that's I mean, when I learned this stuff, I was like, oh my goodness. If you and I are not thinking in this way, Proverbs is telling us we've been corrupted by the power of money. We thought we weren't. But if we only buy a business based on profit and not other things, in terms of benefit of others and the community around us, Proverbs says we've been corrupted by the power of money. It's radical because it's condemning what is what we would call normal capitalistic conservative value practices. Wealth also can make you arrogant. Proverbs 38 and 9. Let's go there and look at that together. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. The key to seeing how this proverb, especially the first part, is linked to arrogance or being proud, is in the phrase, Who is the Lord? Can you think of anybody in Exodus? who said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? 
Pharaoh. The most arrogant, one of the most arrogant men in Scripture. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Notice too that here the person who asks this question, who is the Lord, is the one that's got the potential to be full. Right? Give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food of my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? He's, what he's Proverbs is saying is this the person who is going to likely say, Who is the Lord in arrogance and pride is the one who's already satisfied with wealth. They're not going to want or need God because they're a self made person. Why would I need God? I've got everything I need. I've a, my own ingenuity, my own smarts, my own education, my own work ethic. All of these things has got me where I am. What the heck do I need God for? This was a major concern for God over Israel. I actually believe that this proverb comes from Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. At least in Solomon's thinking, he's got the Old Testament in mind going back to Israel's history. Look at this with me together. This is, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, okay? Beware that you do not, or Moses, I should say. <laughs> Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and the statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord. Your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you, to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and my strength and my hand have made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. You see, again, God's concern for Israel is this. You keep fearing me. You keep obeying my commandments, which is proof that you do fear me. And don't let the wealth get to your head. Again, God was the one who provided Israel with the most incredible land and housing. Free housing when they went into Canaan. The land of milk and honey, that's not like a desert wasteland in the wilderness. God's giving him their absolute best. But what he's saying is this, you be careful that the best I give you, because I'm blessing you with this, does not make you arrogant and full of pride as if you don't need me anymore. Proverbs is teaching us there's nothing like financial prosperity and the accumulation of wealth to make you and I feel overconfident and, you, and like we're self-made men apart from God. That's what Proverbs is saying. One more. The dangers of wealth. Wealth can distract you from what truly is important. Look at 11.4 with me. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. 
What's the day of wrath in the scriptures? The day of judgment. It's a day when God holds you and I accountable for the lives we've lived in the here and the now. And he's saying this, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are now. It does nothing to free you from judgment day. Nothing. You can be a Saudi Arabian prince with literally billions of dollars in your account. It'll do nothing to deliver you the day of judgment. You can be the best golfer in the world, making $100 million a year. It'll do nothing on the day of judgment. You can make $200,000 a year. Say, in the job that you have right now, it'll do nothing to deliver you on the day of judgment. You can make $25,000 a year, and it'll do nothing to deliver you on the day of judgment. No matter how wealthy you are, there's no protection when we stand before God to give an account. The problem with wealth, though, is it blinds you to the fact that there's life after death. And part of the reason is, is that money and the accumulation of wealth keeps you extremely busy. I, I, uh, I, a guy I knew gave me a one-liner one time, and Janice and I never forgot it. He said, the more you own stuff, the more it owns you. <clears throat> As a person that owns stuff, like I just, you know, I get it. Like, as much as I love my camper and trailer, every single time it's time for camping and trailing, I just want to, like, go back to, like, hotels and flying. <laughs> oh, God's people don't camper said. <laughs> It just goes on and on and on, right? But it keeps us busy. It keeps us busy purchasing, trading, negotiating, managing, maintaining, consuming, and the cycle repeats. It's always wanting, it always like, uh, makes you think you need more and want more, believing that you need it. And one day life comes to an end, and it's too late. You haven't thought about eternal things. And you find out on the day of judgment that the life you lived is completely futile and it's been wasted. And there's no escape from God's wrath because you can't bribe them on the day of judgment. There's a guy in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, that fell to this faith. I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to the words. Okay? And Jesus told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store all my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, great word considering Proverbs, um, that very, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? 
So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The problem with this guy was this. This man saved as this as if this life was all there is. That's the problem with this guy. And because he believed this world was all there is, money became sacred. Money became holy. Money took the place of God in eternal things. And Jesus says, you're foolish because there's more to life than this world. So the question is, if it provides so many dangers, why do people go after it so hardly? Like, what's the, what's the attraction to it? We pursue wealth because of this. It's the belief that wealth is the means by which one can achieve ultimate security and a sense of significance. Turn to 10.15 with me in Proverbs. I'm going to read NASB, and I want someone with the NIV to read theirs after I read mine. Okay, Proverbs 10:15. The rich man, sorry, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. Who's got the NIV? Can read theirs. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Okay. The wealth of the rich, or the rich man's wealth, is his fortress or fortified city. So they're interchangeable. Fortress and fortified city. What is Proverbs saying there? Well, in Old Testament times, and again, we get this, those of you who have been to Israel really appreciate like this when you see kind of how things were structured back then. But in Old Testament times, the cities were people's safe place. They were people's secure place place where they felt significant and comfortable. So Here's how we know. So much so that walls were built around the city to protect you so that it was impenetrable to, to affect your safety, your security, your significance, right? So remember Jericho, when they, when they marched around the city, the walls came down and they had access to the city. The people felt safe and secure and significant as long as the walls were standing. Because they can't get in. As soon as the walls were down, it was over. But the city is a place of security, significance, and, and, and value, and safety, and so on. Proverbs is saying this. He doesn't say the rich live in the city. He says the, the city is like a... Oh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. that. It is their safe place. It doesn't say that the rich live in the city. It is their city. In other words, the rich person's wealth, their money, is their safe place. It is their place of security and the place in which they find significance. Now, in opposition to that, what does the Lord want for us? What does the Lord think about that? Where does he want our security, significance, value and safety to come from. Write in your margins, beside chapters 10 and 15, I want you to write Proverbs 18, 10 to 12. And let's turn and read this. Proverbs 18, 10 to 12. 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Strong tower and city are basically compared to one another as being the same thing. He's saying the name of the Lord is to be our strong tower. The name of the Lord is where we get our significance, our security, our safety. But the poor, or sorry, the fool gets it from wealth. All of their identity is wrapped up in money. How much they have, how much they make, and so on. What kind of toys they drive. So, clearly then, as, as the, much of a blessing finances can be and wealth can be, it can also make you believe that it can give you what only God was designed to give you. It competes directly with the Lord for security and significance. I don't know if there's anything else in life that competes more with God in those areas than our personal possessions and how much we have. Now here's the challenge for you if you don't think that's you. And I had to look in the mirror first before I presented these questions to you, so I've already dealt with this. Okay? So if someone says, well, I'm not really, I don't really put that much safety and security into wealth. Like, God is my strong tower. Here's a question for you. Is there an amount of money that you believe you need to have right now in order to feel safe and secure? How much of the money that you are wealth or the possessions you have would you have to lose to have fear? What would drive you into fear? How about in the question of significance? If you and I were to move to a nicer neighborhood, have a bigger home than we already possess, drive a newer vehicle, or wear certain brand names of clothing, would you feel more important than you did before? Would changing your house or your neighborhood, would you, make, would you feel more significant, more important, and that you've arrived compared to before? On the flip side, if you were to downsize or to lose the things that you have, would you feel like you were devalued in life? That you were not where could really fail and you were less important? How about this? When you compare yourself to others, do you feel a sense of inferiority? Or when you compare yourself to others, do you feel a sense of superiority based on what you own? If you and I have, we believed, according to Proverbs, that we can ultimately achieve security and sense of significance through the things that we have. If you and I answer yes to these questions, perhaps money and the pursuit of wealth has more grip on us than we actually realize. We can now see the wisdom of Proverbs. Money is the one thing that directly challenges the security and safety to be found only in the Lord. So how do we break from the power of it? Well, I already told you, it starts with a heart change of Jesus Christ. I'll never stand up here and read the principles and you're going to go, Amen, brother. 
This is between you and God in the area of faith, hope, and love. Your trust of Him, where your security lies in the future, and your compassion towards other people. I cannot change that. That's between you and the Lord. At the same time, though, I am going to present to you next week and next week after the principles of Proverbs, believing that as you read them, God will use them as he changes your heart at the same time. So if you put the principles into play that we're going to learn, that will also break the power of money over you, because he's going to challenge all of this. All of the dangers of money are broken if you obey the principles of Proverbs, because you lay on the side of lady wisdom and not on lady folly. But that comes from here, not from here. So one final thought, and then we'll close. And I owe Tim Keller the, the, the um, credit for this statement, because he made me think about this, and I never even approached Proverbs this way before. And then in fairness, he was great, because he quoted another commentator, which he heard it from. So we're all, we're all passing down who's disciple you here. So here's what I learned from these guys. Proverbs' view of money and wealth does not fit into any of the world's current economic system or way of thinking in terms of like being 100% from one side versus the other. This challenges the entire world system of, of economy and how it thinks about money and wealth. Here's why. You and I will, well, I, in fact, well, better be careful here. You and I are either going to be in two sides of the coin. We're going to be either socialist in our thought processes or conservative and capitalistic, right? And if I were to come to you and, uh, and, and sort of say, what's the positives of either one? Um, you might say, well, there is no positives to one. It's only this way, right? So if you're a socialist, here's how Proverbs challenges you. Because Proverbs embraces hard work. It is pro-making money and having wealth if you've been diligent with your hands. It speaks always against laziness and living off the backs of others. It's okay with personal prosperity and for businesses to do well. <coughs> so if you're a socialist, you're like, I don't like Proverbs. But here's where that's the challenge to most of us in here. If you're capitalist and conservative, it challenges you as well. Here's why. Money can make you proud. Money can make you selfish to the point that you'll, you, all you care about is the bottom line for dollar at the expense of your community, at the expense of your community. <coughs> that, it can make you forget who's important. It can distract you from what's important. It can even bring you to the place where you're going to ask, who is the Lord? You see, Proverbs, you can cheer on, you can cheer it on when you're on the socialist side or the capitalist side, depending on how you look at it. Because the socialist is going to go, amen to Proverbs, I'm glad it's not about just the bottom line, it's about the benefit of the community. The capitalist is like, amen, I love Proverbs, because it's not speaking against uh, lazy people, it's speaking about hard work ethic. And Proverbs is saying, wisdom, wisdom falls in the middle and embraces both things. Depending on which one lines up with God's way. 
in his way of thinking. Anyway, you could go on about that. So, I've probably gone on quite a long time here this morning. It feels like I have. We'll end there. I was tempted to write out lessons, but I don't think I need to. I mean, everything I stated up here is your lessons. These are the lessons. I want to have a kind of dialogue to hopefully this stimulated uh, enough for conversation. But I do want to end with prayer. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do at the end of prayer, in the time of prayer. If you found yourself convicted about any of this stuff that I said today, any of it, let's get together in a group where if there's more than you know, two people, let's have a group of prayer. And we'll pray for God to break the power of money in our lives in the pursuit of wealth. Why don't we gather in groups and we say, yeah, like point number one really spoke to me. Point number six really spoke to me. We have a time of confession. We break the powers. Because next week I'm going to speak about uh, one principle only. But man, if, we, if God could get a hold of our hearts in these areas, what we could do for his kingdom and this community that we live in and the ways we reshape and repurpose our finances. Lord, thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, that you, that you sort of challenge every system that's out there and that you, you make us really think about not just ourselves and, but how it sort of impacts other people and, and helps us even maybe how we view politics, Lord, like just to remember, like even though we're always pro one side, that, again, to think about how you would approach these situations when we view like social justice issues and work and, and things like eat, like, you know, um, like the welfare system or whatever, Lord, we just have to always have this like open mind to what you say about these things. I just pray, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of everyone in here and that as we go forward, Lord, that if we would see a, a change, a change in the way we handle things and the way we view things and we put our significance in security. I do know that we are blessed here and I know that we have a generous church. Like that, there's no question about that, and I'm grateful for them. But I just don't want to miss out on the best that you have for us. And um, there might be just even one little area that each of us have to change that could even be more of a blessing to not only each other, but to uh, the community outside of us as well. So Lord, I just pray for, for us, and thank you for the provisions that you do give us and the blessing that we have received and that we can be to others. In Jesus' name, amen.